Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Ken Dash has Beatles Revolution. This is number 39, 39, 39. Only Beatle geeks know that John Lennon was obsessed with the number nine. Number nine dream. He lived at number nine. Number nine. Revolution number nine. Producer Andrew with us for this one. And we love getting you involved. I always talk about your feedback, and I'm so glad you like it. Uh, Andrew, we've got a lot of requests for part two of the music business that we did with John Bulos from Atlantic Records and Sammy Steinlight and bringing everybody and talking about how the music business has changed from then and now and how you get going and how you get to the next level. So we have to do that in the next few weeks. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. So what we asked on the Q1043 Facebook page and uh, on mine as well, because we've had a lot of requests talking about covers. What are your favorite covers? And you guys have given us a lot of food for thought about the covers we love. And this is a podcast, so we can play snippets of something, but we can't play the whole song. It's not for music. It's just for example, which is what we're doing. Uh, I think everybody in agreement who listens to the podcast, who listens to Breakfast with the Beatles, and for me as well, it doesn't, you know, the answer doesn't have to be the coolest answer in the room. It's about the best. And Joe Cocker's, with a little help from my friends, the Gospel Rave Up, is number one with the listeners and it's number one for me as well. Yeah, it's it's one of those covers that you uh, don't really... You, it, it sounds like Joe Cocker's song. It doesn't sound like a cover song. It's really what any artist anywhere is trying to achieve with a cover is to make it their own. And Joe Cocker is one of a few artists who had a hit with that. Um, and he certainly deserved it. It's... He, His most iconic song. Yeah, he played it for Paul McCartney. And when he played the first acetate for Paul, Paul cried and hugged him and said, that's perfect. That's exactly it. In other words, don't just do it like George Harrison did it. Make a rave-up gospel of this song and make it something that's really impressive. And like you said, if you're going to do a cover, if your band 100,000 is doing a cover, you don't just copy it. A friend who's a jazz singer, Jackie Naylor, one of my favorite performers in the world. She's a friend, but I love her. But they do this acoustic rock jazz smashing. They'll play, she'll, the band will play a jazz funky version of, of Back in Black. And on top of that, she's singing My Funny Valentine. And Josh is playing it on an upright bass. And it sounds like a weird combination, but it works because the things scan the way they do it. They'll do the Allman Brothers meet the Gershwin Brothers. And the band's playing Whipping Post and she's singing Summertime on top of it. And she's not trying, as she said, if you want to hear, if, just listen to Ella Fitzgerald if you want to hear the classics. I'm trying to do something different. And that to me is what a great cover does. Like we said about Joe Cocker, make it your own. Come up with a different sound or something. Yeah, music is supposed to be fun. And you know, another another testimony to why that Joe Cocker version is so great. When I think of it, I don't see Joe Cocker. I see John Belushi. Doing Joe Cocker. Doing Joe Cocker in the SNL bit. Um, one of my favorites, and it's also a gospel version, uh, when you ask about what are mine, Greg Allman doing Rain. And it's not the Allman Brothers. He does it with a gospel choir. It's just him, piano, 
and a gospel choir. It's on the box set, the Olin Brothers box set called Dreams. Let me play a little snippet of what Greg Allman does, and you'll see how it compares to the Joe Cocker version. When the rain comes, they run and hide their head. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sound Beatlewood. Right, nor should it. They made it, a new song out of it. it. Yeah, it just sounds like a a new song that is great. Right, and he's in a church with a microphone and a piano and a choir. And he sounds like he believes every word. There you go. He's Listen not, to the choir. He's not imitating. Isn't that pretty? You know, I, I took vocal lessons to improve my my background singing for my band. And we start we started with singing just some songs that would be kind of in my range. So we started with some radiohead, coldplay, baritone kind of songs that I'd be able to pull off as like a beginner. And one of the things my vocal instructor drilled into my head early on was don't imitate. Sing with your voice, because especially English artists are going to sing sort of with an English accent. So a guy like Greg Allman, if he sings with an English accent, he's going to sound like an asshole. <laughs> Absolutely. But you just hit on something that's so important for an original artist or for someone doing a cover. Do you believe every word of the story? Remember when Don McLean was here and he said, every word matters? That, that applies to singing it as well. When I, I've seen people mail it in, be pitch perfect, and you know they're just, yeah, whatever. I'm just singing my song. You know, and that's the difference between a lounge singer singing something and somebody who really believes it and feels the pain of what they're singing or the joy of what they're singing. If you don't feel the emotion, and I don't mean phony emotion like squinting and doing all the arm movements, you could stand perfectly still. Yeah, there and, doesn't have to be stagecraft. Exactly. I've seen people stand perfectly still in an arena. Eddie Vedder can do that and absolutely like break my heart. With all his jumping around and dancing, he could just sing and you just like feel like you you realize you you haven't taken a breath for thirty seconds. Yeah. Because he just holds your focus. That's what a great singer does. Um, here's an example of a cover that somebody mentioned of uh, Johnny Cash doing "In My Life." Dana. Falchiccio, in my life, Johnny Cash. Johnny's at the end of his life. He can't sing anymore. He can't sing anymore. He had that deep, I love Johnny Cash's voice. An old cowboy went riding out one dark and stormy day. He had that deep, deep, deep. There's nothing left. He's fading away. I think he passed just a month or two after this. So you don't clean up Johnny Cash. You don't sweeten it. You don't make it sound good. Think about this song is what we just said in my life, looking back on your life, this life of being an outlaw, being in prison, being a hard living drinker, being a gospel spiritualist and accomplishing all he did. Here's a, a, a snippet of Johnny Cash doing in my life. Places I'll remember all my life, though some have changed. So now, obviously, he can't sing much and he can't hold pitch, but it breaks my heart, just tears. 
because he has he earned the right to sing that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? His life was around the globe five mm-hmm. times. He earned the right. And he was so transparent throughout his entire career in his music, whether it was original songs or the gospel period or sort of later in the 90s and the aughts when he was mostly doing covers. Everything was just so personal and so about whatever he was going through at the time. When he was revitalized about his religion, when he ruined a marriage... When he had a new marriage on the way and things were good, when he had a kid, when he fell off the wagon, when he got back on the wagon, it was all reflected in his music, every part of his career. Going back to what Andrew said before, why was Folsom Prism such a huge hit? It's a great song, but when he sings, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, you believe it. Yeah, the, you know, the, the way the, he said it, you go, Johnny Cash could have done that. The cops in, in doing security, kind of like clutching their billy clubs, like, wait a sec, turning around. You could never sing that song. Andrew Magnata could never sing, I shot a man in Reno, just to watch him die, because the whole world would go, you never shot anybody for the joy of that. It, but you look at Johnny Cash with the scar on his face. I have an archery merit badge, I'll have you know. Okay, so yes, you're a badass. Fair enough. <laughs> You look at Johnny Cash, you go, yeah, he probably did that. And so many of the songs... Or he at least knows somebody who did that. Right. I never picked cotton. When it was Saturday night in Reno and a redneck grabbed my shirt, you know, said, uh, go back to your cotton sack. I left him lying in the dirt and they'll take me in the morning to the gallows right outside. Like, yeah, you were an inch away from being that guy. You know, you yeah. were an inch away, and that guitar is what got you out of prison. And there's there's an aspect of that song that sounds almost like spiritual. Yep. There's there's a blues aspect to it. There's country in it. There's rock and roll in it because of those other elements, because rock and roll is like an aggregation. And then in, in this version of In My Life, if you listen to it, the piano's kind of out of tune. Yeah. Johnny's out of tune. Right, as it should be. Yeah. That's how it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be pre-prettied up. Um, Rob uh, emailed, uh, he Facebooked in to message us to say one of his favorite versions, Elton John's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Not my favorite. I don't really enjoy it because it's perfect. It's Elton. It's a huge hit. And it was a huge hit on the radio. He did great with it. But it didn't do exactly what you just talked about. He didn't hear really a different way of doing it. He did the Elton piano to it, mm-hmm. and it's a great song, and he loved it. But it wasn't, what do you bring to it? It wasn't that, wow, look at this thing. You know, he just he knew it could be a hit, and he did it. And it was great that Elton covered it and that he played on whatever gets you through the night and got John mm-hmm. Lennon on the stage. But it was just a hit song. It was just a single. There wasn't a heart. My Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and for, again, for it's not that deep, but because I've played it on Breakfast with the Beatles a lot, Warren Haynes with The Grateful Dead. Warren Haynes is one of my favorite American voices, one of my favorite whiskey tenors of all time. <laughs> you know, Warren could sing Mary Had a Little Lamb, and I'll just sit there swaying going, oh. Oh, this is incredible. You know, it's just it's a voice that syncs with my ear, with my... Yeah, he my, has kind of an unlikely voice. Right. It's he, a little high, but there's some gravel to it. And he doesn't sound like he was schooled in how to sing. Right. 
but he figured out how to do it through trial and error. I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's the way it sounds. Very much like Greg Allman, very much like a lot of the great rock singers around, like Bruce Springsteen even. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. There's no singing lessons involved in any of that. So let me give you a little snippet. This is Warren with the Dead at the PNC Bank Art Center in New Jersey, August of 2014. Picture yourself on a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope. See, I just, I love that, that honky tonk piano. It sounds like a tap yeah. piano. You know, it, 2004, would that be Vince Welnick playing piano at that point? I think Brent is gone. I believe that would be probably be Vince or Bruce Hornsby. Uh, forgive me, Deadheads. I'm not sure of the chronology of this but it's i think it's vince welnick or bruce hornsby and that's how the grateful dead should be singing that and i love the dead's music i'm not a deadhead i think the live shows were really sloppy and loose they had moments but some of my some of my most disliked Beatle covers was when jerry did dear prudence over and over so many times and you know he was on heroin and they're 15 minutes long, and they're dirges. <laughs> and you've lost the, you've lost anything about it. It's just, dear prudence. Like, come on, Jerry, you're not in the, you're not in a good space to sing this, so don't. Yeah, I think there's, there's at least two categories of covers. I haven't thought about this a lot, but I think there's at least two. There's, there's like the Joe Cocker, sort of school of a cover where you totally reinvent a song you take the lyrics you take elements of the melody um elements of the chords whatever key you need it to be to perform it and then you tinker with the arrangement the instrumentation the feel really reinvent the song and then there's sort of like the elton version where you kind of do it as a cloud uh, a crowd pleaser you do it for fun I think Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is one of the one of the best songs to do that with because it's got sort of a whimsicality to it. Yeah. There's also another element that if you're in show business between, say, 1965 and 1973, you kind of better cover a Beatles song if you yeah. want to get over. If you want the crowd to go nuts, whether you're in Lake Tahoe or you're at a Holiday Inn, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, or you're doing a TV show, or you know, you're on the Mike Douglas show. Hey, what are you going to sing for us? Well, I'm going to do my favorite Beatles song because no one will boo you. No matter what you do, yeah, with everyone it. Likes if it. you sing a, a, a Beatles song playing a rubber band on a cigar box with, <laughs> with a jaw harp, they'll go, Oh, it's cool. Because that's how big it is. It's this, it's this giant thing that has. That has like sucked the entire music business into it. The music business is the Beatles. Yeah. So from everyone from pop sort of pop rhythm and blues to country, everybody's got to do a Beatles song if you want to get over. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, really become that. If you're in that bar in the Blues Brothers with the chicken wire in mm -hmm. front of the stage. And just to break the beer bottles before they hit you. Yeah, and, <laughs> and if, if you want to get out of there alive... Maybe with a tip. 
<laughs> Maybe. Maybe. You might cover a Beatles song. Because you, you, they would not hit you with a bottle if you're singing a Beatles song, which is where we get to Sinatra, who called something the greatest love song ever written. And I'd like to think that Sinatra didn't feel he had to kowtow. I don't know. I can't imagine the chairman of the board ever felt he had a kowtow to the Beatles. But he did want to be relevant yeah. in the 70s. Before we get to the 80s where he says, you know, fuck it. I'm putting on my tuxedo. I'm going to get a drink of scotch, light a cigarette, and go back to just singing, saloon singing. And I'll just be Sinatra. And whether I'm playing the garden or McNulty's Bar and Grill back in Hoboken, I'm going to be me. And that's when he found himself again. Yeah. But there was a period in the late 70s where he's wearing like a powder blue leisure suit mm -hmm. and a Nick Nick shirt. That was the big thing in the 70s. He had this like polyester Nick Nick shirt. And he's wearing the, the disco look. Yeah, and the puka beads, the little shell beads. I'm like, don't, <laughs> you know, Frank, don't do that. You, you shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, I, I think artists go through that. Like at, at that point, Frank Sinatra, his film career was was, was kind of done, over, yeah. right? Um, and I think athletes go through it. Yeah, and it's sort of like the decision you make there. It's almost like it doesn't matter because in 10, 15 years, people are just going to want to see the old thing. They're mm -hmm. just going to want to see Frank with the big band. Yeah, that because that's you. That's who you are. You know, it, Like, that's what people are going to remember regardless. So I don't know this Frank Sinatra with the seashell necklace. That's not my anything that I remember, any image that's in my head of him. I remember Frank from the movies and from, you know, being the guy in the tuxedo in the 60s. And then when he was doing it again in the 90s. Right. That's who he's supposed to be. Yeah. That's I don't remember anything of him being off-brand Frank Sinatra. Just like I don't remember Kobe Bryant when he was hobbling around on, you know, a busted <laughs> Achilles and taking, going like five for 30. Right. That's, those those aren't the moments we remember as fans. Right. Sinatra, he, he Sinatra'd up. Something by George Harrison. Something in the way she moves Attracts me like no other lover You know, it's with the big strings and the singing off the melody. You know, it's, it's almost like an imitation of Sinatra. I love Sinatra, but it's like you said, when you believe it, quarter to three, no one in the place but you and me. So set him up, Joe. Like, it's quarter to three, and I want another drink. I got it. You know, that's Sinatra to me yeah. at his best. Or Strangers in the Night, there's such joy and, wow, out of the blue, there's romance. But you feel it. You believe it. That's, that's, that's what made him great to me is that you believe my way, earth-shattering, mm -hmm. because it, I did it my way. I beat people up. I was for the Kennedys, then I became a Republican, and I, you know, I was with the mob, and then I was afraid they were going to kill me because of the Kennedys. You know, I did it my way, and screw you, I, I did it. And I, when he sings that, you go, yeah, you did. You know, that's that's the real Frank to me. Not we're in a we're in a leisure suit singing some you know pop tune. Or there was one Mike Douglas appearance. You can see it on YouTube, and he's singing with Marilyn McCoo and Billy. Davis, I think, and like, you don't do that. That's that's yeah. not who you are. This is a to me an enjoyable song, an enjoyable version of the song. 
more just because of Frank's credibility. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but he's definitely playing the character of Frank Sinatra. <laughs> right. You just listen to the the string section at the beginning and it's sort of like a caricature but he's still so Frank Sinatra about it that you have to like it even just a little bit. Oh yeah. And listen, the R&B guys, they actually did love the Beatles. If you remember way back when, if you guys listen to the podcast, uh, when Jimmy Vivino came up last year with Joe Lewis Walker, the soul singer, part of the Love Rocks benefit. And Joe said, you know, a soul singer from the South going, when the Beatles refused to play a segregated show. And my father, with tears in his eyes, says, those English boys, they're all right. They get it. They get it. He said, you have no idea. Remember that? We have no idea what that means to an American a black singer in the South that the Beatles wouldn't play a segregated show while American artists would and go, well, what are you going to do? But the Beatles wouldn't. He goes, you want to tell, tell me how much I love the Beatles and a for their music, but B for just making that simple stand. As Paul, said, we just thought it was ridiculous. What do you mean? Blacks can't come. No, can't have yeah. it in the documentary eight days a week. You know, Whoop, why is Whoopi Goldberg in there? She said when she went to Shea stadium, she goes, I'm not a black person. I'm a Beatle fan. Mm-hmm. And I'm with I'm with 50,000 Beatle fans. That's all. We're just Beatle yeah. fans. That's what they had the power to do, and they understood it. They used it right. That's something that's worth an entire episode or two of the show. Because in, in eight days a week, it's almost like, you know, that's such a huge thing, such a powerful thing. Because of the Beatles' other accomplishments, we don't really talk about... The, the impact they had on the civil rights movement, it's probably, like Joe Lewis Walker said, he they probably didn't really understand how much that meant it. to people. Yeah. And exactly. maybe that's why it's something that's kind of a, a footnote in their history, but that, you know, that's such an incredible thing. You know, it, it really made a difference. Uh, John Colbert, who plays keyboards, he's been on Breakfast with the Beatles a lot. And he talks about all the R&B stuff that he loves. Earth, Wind, and Fire's Gotta Get You Into My Life. Richie Haven's Eleanor Rigby. I love Richie Haven's version of Here Comes the Sun. Do you ever hear that? I don't think so, no. I mean, he here's the perfect how to make a cover. It is completely different than what Joe Conker does, but he makes it a folk soul version of Here Comes the Sun. Here's a, a little clip of Richie. <laughs> And that's Richie's guitar style. He had this crazy kind of strumming. You couldn't you couldn't learn it if you tried. It was mm-hmm. like not guitar playing, guitar playing. He he sort of played with all his fingers on the on the fretboard and on the strings. But he got this insane sort of yeah. sound to it with bongos, just as he opened Woodstock, you know, playing Motherless Child and, you know, Freedom. You know, man from Brooklyn bringing the goods, and he understood how to make the Beatles his own. Here comes the sun, you know, this positive message and making it a folk song and speeding it up and making it faster. That's, as you said, he believes all of that because he's heard, here's how I hear it. And yeah. that's what makes it perfect. Yeah, there's there's an inspiration behind it. It's not that's necessarily the word. you got it. You got it. You it's got not it. necessarily that it's been dissected and it's like, oh well, well this guy did it this way, and of course the Beatles did it like that. So maybe I'll use a substitution here, <laughs> and maybe I'll 
I'll invert the the chord and no, it's it's just a real inspiration. Maybe it's it's a melody you hear in the bass line and you bring that up top or or whatever just sort of comes out, whatever. You're you're absolutely right. With the the professors who analyze the Beatles and pick it apart in this didactic discussion of what this chord change means and you've missed the whole point of what the songs are. The great covers like this are what we do. A lot of folks uh, talked about Eddie Vedder's version of this song. Eddie doing Hide Your Love Away. You want to talk about a guy who puts his heart into every word he's ever sung in his life. Yeah. From, from, you know, Jeremy to Better Man to the, the smallest song he's ever written to Hide Your Love Away. You know, he's got it. He gets there, it. There, there's something about Eddie Vedder, particularly performing live, it's like he sings everything so hard it almost gives me a headache. <laughs> because it's so, you can just, like, there's there's veins pump, uh, you know, bulging out of his temples, and <sighs> and I feel like I'm supposed to feel that way about it. That's one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Producer Andrew and I, Ken Dash, we were going over Beatles covers. You guys have suggested so many. Uh, a lot of requests, a lot of mentions of Come Together by Aerosmith. Sure. Steven Tyler, one of the biggest Beatle geeks in the world. And they Aerosmithed it, you know, and that's yeah. what it's supposed to be. Yeah. They made it an Aerosmith song and changed, you know, the second line. Here comes old Flat Top. He comes grooving up soda. Not slowly, soda. He didn't want to get punched. And he didn't want to get sued because Alan Klein, you know, the Chuck Berry, Morris Levy owned the Chuck Berry songbook, and he sued John Lennon for covering. It was, uh, you know, that's the Chuck Berry line. Here come old flat top, he come grooving up slowly. He, you know, and that's from, jeez, uh, oh, I just spaced out on the name of the song. Forgive me. If you could look it up for me. The brain is just, is gone by this point. But, you know, he covered it and... You can't catch me. Can't catch me, yeah, right, because he's in the car. Um, so John Lennon's way of making it back to him said, look, I'm going to cover some Chuck Berry songs on the rock and roll album, so I'll give you that money back so that way it'll cover it. And, you know, Chuck settled it a different way by simply punching John in the face. And then getting the money. <laughs> and then getting the money, because that's how Chuck rolls. Yep. So you you guys should do what Chuck Berry did when you play live. You show up and you hold your hand out and you say, pay me in cash or I don't play. And that's what Chuck did. He walked in, took the cash, and then he walked out on stage. And there were times when he wasn't happy where he walked off the stage before he played Johnny B. Good and said, I want an extra thousand or I don't play Johnny B. Good. Now, I know he got screwed over left, right, and sideways by every promoter, every record company, every, you know, guns to his head, you're a black guy, screw you. I get how tough it was. I mean, I didn't feel it viscerally, but I can understand it. But spending the rest of your life beating the hell out of everyone you meet in every show and the band. I saw him fire the band once on stage. He did here in New York. And I knew the guys. He would just show up. You, you, you hired a local band. You paid him. He needed a drummer and a bass player. And he would just show, how you doing, Chuck Berry? Hi, Andrew, Chuck Berry. You know the tunes, right? I'll call him out. I mean, how could you not know the tunes? Everything is C, F, G in some form of those three. I'll call them out. 
And if you don't know Chuck Berry songs, you shouldn't be on the stage playing rock and roll. And if they didn't get it right after two, three songs, he'd fire him. Go get out of here. And he'd just play solo. And he did that. Tough guy, Chuck Berry. Little, he, he was tough to deal with. And um, he had his pleasures. There were, you know, there's a lot of excess in rock and roll, but Chuck was pretty impressive. Um, and I'm not speaking ill of the dead because I don't think he thought of it as speaking ill. There's a friend of mine, as I digress, who is a uh, stage manager for a local venue and had a knock on his on his dressing room door because it was time for him to go on. And he knocks, and Chuck says, come in. And he comes in, and Chuck Berry is being serviced, is the cleanest way I can say it, by a young lady. And he is sitting in a chair, and above her head, he's holding a plate and eating a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) And he says, and my friend who was the stage manager says, uh, 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 Mr. Berry, uh, it's uh, show time. And Chuck says, let me finish my sandwich. <laughs> I dare you to do that, Andrew. I double dog dare you at some point in your career. Try. I know your, your fiance, Kara, might be listening. I double dog dare you to try that one day in your life. See how that goes. Well, I've been double dog dared, so, so yeah. what choice do I have? <laughs> That's the chucker. That's Chuck Berry. That's your excesses in rock and roll. Uh, Vinny. Healy says Dana Fuchs doing Helter Skelter. That's Dana rock that. Dana can really sing her butt off. We have to get Dana up here. She's a dear friend and she can really sing. She did Janice. Dana's Dana's greatest failures in artist is that she was born 30 years too late because you've got all these twinky kids singing and Dana just guts it out and rocks it like Janice Joplin, you know, like Grace Slick. If she was born you know, in the in the fifty in the forties or fifties, you'd be talking about Janis Joplin, Grace Slick, and Dana Fuchs. You know, she was that rock voice, and she just kills it. So, Dana, I'm letting you know right now, you have to come back and do it. Um, as we talk about great voices and Beatle covers, um, what do you think about Elvis Presley singing Beatles? Now, here, let's just say the Beatles basically pushed Elvis into. I don't know if they pushed him into the rodeo circuit. We were talking about this before. There's a documentary on HBO about Elvis, two-part documentary. It's brilliant. Elvis was the king of rock and roll, and he is riding that 56 caddy, and he is the king. And the Beatles come along in an F-15 and go, hey, Elvis, we love you, And and they're gone. And as the but it's all Tom Parker's fault. If you watch this, the Colonel Tom Parker's fault, as you said. What was your phrase? A manager should see you as being greater than even you see you. How did you phrase it? You said it perfectly. Yeah, you know, there's that phrase: shoot for shoot for the moon, and maybe you'll land on the roof. Beautifully but said. But Colonel Tom Parker was sort of shooting for the first floor <laughs> and landing on the first floor because he he knew he could get there. Elvis, you can play any state fair in the country. Why do you want to go to Europe, right? Yeah, so what we find out in the documentary and something we always knew, Colonel Tom Parker wasn't really here as a legal citizen. There's a lot of shady background, and he may have murdered somebody, and maybe it wasn't his real name. So he was afraid to leave America, so he never let Elvis leave America. We got plenty of work right here. We make them movies, 
And, uh, you know, those go all over the world. Why do you got to get on a plane? You know, let the Beatles travel. You get to be here and make one shit movie after another. <laughs> it's like, and You're El doing 10 movies a week, Elvis. <laughs> I don't know what the problem is. There's a line in this piece where Elvis said, you know what's worse than watching a bad movie? Making them. So he wasn't that stupid. You know, he, yeah, he's a hillbilly. You know, he's a hick and all that. Elvis wasn't stupid. He knew these movies were god-awful. It's 1967. The Beatles make Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Magical Mystery Tour. And Elvis makes Clam Bake and Harem Scarum, where they have dark makeup on them in a turban. <laughs> I mean, like, can you... And go ahead. Tell me why Elvis drank and took pills. Go ahead. Tell me why. Mm -hmm. Like, can you and But the, here's the saddest thing is he never had the balls to go, you know what? Yeah. Screw you. I'm good. He said, interview, you see You know, I've seen a lot of Elvis movies. My dad's a big Turner Classic Movies fan. I never saw <laughs> Harem Scare. You didn't miss a whole lot. Okay. And there might have been one or two good songs in each movie, but the movies are just shit, and his acting is yeah. awful. And there's, there's a girl. And Anne-Margaret was sexy and gorgeous, and they had a connection. And he said in this documentary, she was amazing. She lit up the screen, so Parker wouldn't let her be in another movie. Because she detracted from Elvis. So you get in that fa Shelley Fabre and all these other generic girls because Anne Margaret detracted. No, she lifted it. Don't you understand that if Elvis has somebody as sexy and alive as him, it's a better movie? No. You're just that stupid that you don't even, even understand how movies work. And here these guys are changing the world. I'm not saying Elvis was ever going to write a song mm -hmm. or make Sgt. Pepper's, but... Why, you know, as we talked about Frank Sinatra wearing a leisure suit, rather than turning into what I see as the circus clown when Elvis goes to Vegas, when he's finally pushed into being Siegfried and Roy wearing the white jumpsuit with the rhinestones and the ridiculous mutton chops and the glasses singing, in the ghetto, like, that ain't Elvis. Remember a few weeks ago when Don McLean was here? And I said, hey, how cool is it? that Elvis covers your song, and I love you so. And he said, I hated that. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I don't want Elvis singing like sappy ballads. I want Elvis to rock out. Right. And that's exactly, he's absolutely right. I don't care if it's 67 or 77. I want Elvis, you know, looking like a rocker, singing Mystery Train, you know, singing Jailhouse Rock, singing some early rockers. Just, you know, think about what Brian Setzer and the Rockcats did, you know, when, excuse me, Straight Cats, and the rockabilly movie, you could have been the rocker. You just be the rocker. Just be Elvis. What made it, yeah, you made some money. I mean, you know, you made plenty of money. But you would have made money no matter what. You could have just stayed as Elvis. You know, and look, he understood the Beatles were the thing. He he sang them. He loved the Beatles music. As much as he resented being pushed aside from the British invasion, uh, they always asked Paul McCartney, what's your favorite Beatles cover. I mean, yesterday's most covered version in the history of music. Guinness Book of World Records. There's been nothing, no song has been covered more than yesterday. And they always ask him what his favorite is. And to be politically correct, he never says his favorite. And maybe he doesn't have one, but he said the one that I know remember the most is Elvis because he kind of changed the words. Right. And here's this live version of Elvis doing yesterday. Why she had to go, I don't know, she wouldn't say. I must have said something wrong, no, 
Yeah, Paul thinks he missed the point. Yeah, it's like, oh, Musa, maybe I said something wrong. I might have, you know, Musa said something wrong. Like, and as Paul has always said, and he said it on stage, no, you did. You did say something wrong. That's why she left. That's the point of the song. And he, he, he had said when we talked about it once, he goes, I don't think he could have ever admitted the king said something wrong. No, I'm the king. Can't say anything wrong. But it might have. You never know. To her, you know. <laughs> to her, right. Sorry you feel that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know that that if we see it in the news all the time. The worst apology you can ever do is, I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said implies you're an idiot for being offended. Don't just say I'm sorry. I'm sorry if some people were offended by me saying X, Y, and Z. Like, no, no, never qualify it. Just say I'm sorry. That's all. But it's almost like that's what Elvis says. It's a it's a half-assed apology. Well, you took it the wrong way. Because <laughs> I'm Elvis and I, I can't say anything wrong. Uh, this is fun, doing Beatle covers that you guys suggested. What, Je- what's your position on um, some of the Guns N' Roses Beatles versions? Since we talked about Aerosmith. Yeah. Uh, I really love Guns N' Roses. I really enjoy it. And... You know, let me say this. I love Appetite for Destruction. Yeah, me too. That was just one of the great records that ever came out. It reignited classic rock because Slash went to school on all the right things. It was a great classic rock record in the late 80s, and there just weren't a whole lot of them. And Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 had some songs, and then it kind of dribbled. To me, they sort of jumped the shark immediately after Appetite for Destruction. They did. But their version of Live and Let Die, yeah, I don't even really hear it as a Beatles song when they do it. They made it Guns N' Roses, but it goes And back- I feel the same way about um, Knocking on Heaven's Door. I don't necessarily love the versions, but it, they don't strike me as covers. They did something that we spoke on, touched on earlier. I didn't hear anything that different. They just did these songs like the way their band sounds. Yeah. And you didn't have a different take on it. You just did it with your voices and your instruments. You know the famous story about why they did Knock on Heaven's Door, right? No, I don't. <laughs> you know I love Bob Dylan. Bob's, mm-hmm. Bob's my guy. Beatles and Dylan. It's not just Beatles. I'm a Bob guy. I'm, I'm through and through. Bob did some festival or something, and Bob, on his own, just got, I want to meet Guns N' Roses. <laughs> and he goes back. I want to meet. You know, and he goes back afterwards. Oh my God, Bob Dylan! Bob Dylan, that's great. And he says to Slash, "Hey, why don't you guys cover one of my songs?" And Slash, like the top hat comes off his head. He goes, <laughs> "Like really? You, you you know our stuff? You like our sound? You you like our band? You think we do a great job? Wow, that's awesome! What song do you think we should do? What you know? What 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 I should do? What what should we do? Tell me what song you hear us doing." Bob says, "The hell do I know?" I don't care. I just want the money. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, you know, but it's still a good idea. So, yeah. Okay. We'll do our, it. Our people will talk to your people <laughs> and worse than that. That's our Bob. That's our Bob. My favorite Bob. I mean, if Bob came up to me and told me to cover one of his songs, I'd make it happen too. Of course you would. This is Bob. Yeah. Doesn't matter why. He got his blessing for whatever the hell reason it is. Okay. Remember, uh, uh, again. <laughs> I need back. a pool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I want a new car. Do one of my songs. <laughs> what, what Don McLean said when he was a kid, he was doing a benefit for like a Hudson, the Hudson River or something school. 
And Bob comes up to him and says, how long did it take you to write that? He goes, man, that song really moved me. And I said, to you know, this guy throws around compliments like manhole covers. <laughs> he said some things about famous artists I will not repeat on this podcast. They were so horrible. And I don't know if he meant it or not, but he said some horrible things about some really great people. But, <laughs> I mean, back in the 60s, he and Paul Simon, he toured with Paul Simon like about 10 years ago. But back in the 60s, he and Paul went at each other. Hmm. Um, they asked they asked Paul Simon what he thought of Bob Dylan's music, and he said, it sounds like heated up leftover Kerouac. <laughs> and then they asked Bob Dylan, what do you think of Paul Simon? And he said, Paul who? That's good. Come on, that's pretty good. That's a good comment. A little played off, played out. <laughs> and, I mean, my favorite Bob Dylan one-liner, the manager of Led Zeppelin, Peter Grant, Bull in a China shop. He was a bouncer who just, I'm your manager. And he wanted to meet Bob Dylan. And there was some festival back in the late 60s, early 70s. It's like 69, Zepp just got going. And he just bullies his way backstage, knocks the guards out of the way, and barges into the dressing room. And Bob's reading the newspaper. <laughs> Bob always reads the newspaper and reads the sports. He's a big, big baseball fan. And he just walks in and goes, Bob Dylan, I'm Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin's manager. And Bob just looks up and says, do I come to you with my problems? <laughs> no, that's our Bob. That's good. Bob Bob Dylan meeting people <laughs> is like a whole genre. That could be a TV series. Absolutely. There was uh, when Rob Halford came up from Judas <laughs> Priest. So Judas Priest is named after a Bob Dylan lyric right. or a Bob Dylan song. And Rob Halford was up here a few weeks ago. He told the story of meeting Bob Dylan, and the one thing that he remembered Dylan saying to him years ago was, hey, man, how's Ozzy doing? How's Ozzy? Why Ozzy? No idea. Does, does Bob Dylan know that both Rob Halford and Ozzy Osbourne are from Birmingham? Maybe. Almost, almost definitely not, though. He could, no, you have no idea how much Bob knows. Right. Bob is like a sponge on, on minutia of stuff. And it's, I mean, it's amazing. He knows so much about art and history and all this Well, it, stuff. it would make sense given the detail of the man's lyrics. I That he just takes in information. Yeah. I, I've met Bob Dylan three times, and I never want to meet him again because each time was better than the last. <laughs> you know, you don't want to roll the, you roll the dice, you hit a seven. You roll the dice a year later, you hit a seven. Five years later, you take one roll of dice, you hit a seven. You don't want to go back to the craps tape. I mean, I, I've never had bad Bob. It's always been the, I'll, I'll give you a, here's my take on Dylan. It's always been anecdote Bob. Yes. <laughs> my, you know, he's so in the moment and he's so, he, he, it's truly in the moment. It was the, uh, the unplugged show at the supper club and backstage and it's because it's it's sony records and the thing and i'm backstage and i'm hanging and sometimes i i just got caught between the dressing room and the artist coming out on stage and this happens at venues you're supposed to clear the area i always feel really bad about that exactly because here's the thing folks when the uh, an artist is about to come out on stage that's not a time to talk to him or catch his eye or take a picture he's focused on the show a, a woman, it doesn't matter who it is. It could be the, the second conga player. They're about to perform. Everyone has their own routine. Right, whatever it is. And you don't, they don't have to have anybody around 
They just need to get from their dressing room to the stage. That's why after the show or after sound check, you could talk, but not before the show. And I get caught by accident in that little vestibule before Bob's about to go on stage in this tiny place, the Supper Club here in Manhattan. And he walks out and he's standing next to me and I am averting my eyes. I am averting, I'm not looking at him. And I feel like this heat. I feel him staring at me. And we've met a couple of times, but he doesn't know me from a hole in the wall or so I think. And I'm, I'm not looking at him, but he's just staring at me. And I finally turn quickly and give him like this little quick nod, like all good, you know, and turn back away. And Bob says to me, they're holding the curtain open. And Bob says, do I know you? What are you supposed to say? Like, no, and run away? I just didn't know what to say. So I said, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Ken Dasho from the, you know, uh, the radio, uh, you know, Q1043, uh, you know, and uh, NEW. Yeah, I work with, and I, like, I thought he needs a quick point of reference. So I said, uh, with Scott Muni. And Bob looks at me and goes, oh, Scott Muni, man, I love Scott Muni. You know, he was great. He was so instrumental in what we were doing. Listen, I, if it wasn't for radio, I'd have nothing. You know, I'd still be at Curtis Folk City. I love listening to radio. When I came to New York, you know, there was no <laughs> FM radio really to speak of at all. And then as we started coming, it grew up. We grew up together. And he's doing the interview that he's never done ever in life <laughs> with me at that moment, just before the stage, before he's supposed to go on, it's the thing every single DJ, me, Scott, everyone, has been dying to get him to talk about of real-life New York City, and he's just going. The PA announcer is, and now Bob Dylan. <laughs> yes. and Bob <laughs> Dylan. His tour manager is glaring at me. If he had a gun, I was dead. And he's just glaring at me, and I'm like, and I'm just standing there, and you don't know... Do you interrupt Bob Dylan's story to go, hey, shut up, you got to go play? Do you, you know the pressure? My heart is pounding in my ears, and I'm nodding, and I'm looking, and I, say, and I finally, after like a five minutes of him just talking about radio in New York and Scott Muni and what, what the folk scene was, and then I plugged in, and I went electric because I So heard, he was going through his whole career. He was doing <laughs> the interview he's never done standing there before the show. Unprompted. Right, and I said, hey, Bob... This is one of the greatest moments of my life. But we should continue this after the show. I think you're needed on stage. And he looked at me completely incredulous and said, what? I said, We're, they're waiting for you. And he looked and like shocked, truly shocked. I don't think it was an act at all. He said, oh, oh, yeah. Okay, can you hang afterwards? Yeah, we'll talk more. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I got to do this, but we'll finish this. <laughs> And he walked out on stage, and as before the his tour manager grabbed me by the neck and choked me to death, I said, you saw exactly how that happened. I didn't instigate it. I didn't do anything. You saw how that happened. You know you did, and you know I was polite, and you know I wasn't trying, and he initiated it. I didn't even try, and I was just being polite. You saw the whole thing. Don't, be, don't scream And you me. said he wasn't doing interviews. Right? Exactly. And he looked at me, and he like... He took a deep breath and said, I know, but you just can't engage him. <laughs> and I said, but I didn't. I didn't. He goes, but you did. You can't talk. I said, so what was I supposed to do? Where could I go? I couldn't, I couldn't leave. There was no place to leave. And he just shook his head and walked away because he knew, even though it was wrong, he knew I was sort of kind of, I was really innocent. I wasn't trying to do it. 
And afterwards I thought, well, he's not going to remember that at all. You know, and afterwards I, I was, I'm talking with Roger McGuinn from the birds cause he was there, you know, his old friend and the, the, the guy comes, he goes, uh, he wants to see you. And I said to Roger, wow, this is a lot of fun. We had a great talk. He goes, no, he, he wants to see both of you. And just went in and we kept on talking. And it was that thing of, please, God, could please make a tape recorder materialize in my hand because this is the interview he's never done in his life. You put a microphone, we put Bob Dylan right here where you're sitting. You go, Bob, let's talk about New York. What about it? The big city. Tell me about the 60s. It was a tab. You know, he just, he wouldn't do it. It's like you're voir a witness to a murder. But it was that moment when he wanted to talk and that was it. As opposed to, you know, Paul, t- bringing this back to the Beatles, think about what he says when he says to the Beatles, you got the world's attention, now say something. Boom! And they blow up the mop tops and off we go. Would that have happened without Bob Dylan? Maybe, probably, I'm sure it would be. But the fact is, it did. It's Bob and the Beatles and they've always been interacted. And you had asked me before, did Bob Dylan ever cover a Beatles song? Um, you know, he, you know, he did, you know, as George said, I want you. And, uh, there's a moment after George died and he was playing the garden and Bob Dylan sang something. He goes, this is for a friend of mine. 20,000 people crying their eyes out. Yeah. Crying. Like you can't imagine how powerful it was. So I don't leave and now. And just, you couldn't, I couldn't talk. He just knew he stopped the whole room. And he finished the song and just said, well, anyway. And to, he took a moment because we needed a moment to gather ourselves before he could play another song. So I think as we look back on doing cover songs, whether you're the, you know, yeah, one of the things Norman mentioned, a lot of people have the I Am Sam soundtrack. Yeah. The movie is is brilliant. Jeff Beck's A Day in the Life. The answer is, well, there's no answer. But my feeling, our two cents, I think me and producer Andrew... If you sang it with your heart and with emotion and you heard it the way you heard it and you wanted to bring new life to it, you heard something about it, then it's going to be a great cover. And if I'm not saying it's a hack move, but if you're doing it just to cash in on the Beatles cachet, well, it's going to make some money, but it's just going to sit there and lay there. Except for perhaps the single greatest cover of a Beatles song ever done, which would be William Shatner. <laughs> Doing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Would you agree? Absolutely. Should we leave them with that? I think that's a good idea. That's cruel, though, don't you think? No, it's not. As George Takai calls him, the shat. (laughs) 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 Doing, Doing a moment of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Thank you for listening to Ken Dashow's Beatles Revolution. Thank you, producer Andrew. Thank you, Ken. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with... Tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you. You answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. 